and I'm also excited about um, what God's going to do today. I feel like this is going to be a special day. Um, and I, I, I'm amazed at the way in which God is able to work as I'm looking through the bulletin and I'm hearing the songs. I feel like someone was looking at my sermon notes as we are, you know, singing these songs about holiness and the things that we're going to talk about today, as we're confessing what God's law really requires of us. These are the things I'm going to talk about today. And then my wife was holding this and opening up this, and I look over and went, oh, okay, interesting. They put that quote that I have in my sermon in the bulletin, and I go, wait a minute. I didn't send my sermon notes to anyone. How, how did they know to... to <laughs> Um, put that quote in there, and it's a quote by a guy named Miroslav Volf, who's not exactly a household name. Uh, so I, I'm just very excited, and uh, apparently my sermon prep and whoever prepared this, uh, God was working through uh, his providence uh, to line these up perfectly. So uh, I'm hoping and praying that God is going to bless all of us through the word today. Um, so before we begin, before I even read the, uh, the scripture passage, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we're uh, dealing with another difficult passage, uh, another hard passage, um, hard words from Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and this time that we have been granted the privilege of coming into your presence and to be worshiping you among your people, among our brothers and sisters that you have brought into our lives. We thank you for all the ways that you have blessed us. We thank you especially for sending your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. We ask that you would Help us as we have turned to your word. Help us through your spirit understand the message that you have for us today. Help us hear what the spirit is speaking to the church. I ask for myself that you would give me wisdom and give me the grace to not add my thoughts to what your scripture teaches and to not waltz over or ignore the things that your scripture teaches just because they don't fit into what I think. We pray that um, you would take my opinions out of this completely and help us hear the truth of your word proclaimed to us and proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that we would hear the gospel, that we would encounter the risen Christ, that we would know who you are through your scripture today, that you would continue your project of salvation through these words. We pray all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our passage, as I said, is from Matthew 5. We're reading verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends his rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. Last week, on our way home from church, my wife and I ended up having a, a very good discussion uh, about the sermon, and I say it was very good because sometimes discussions about sermons can not be very good if, uh, <laughs> if we end up fighting about it, but uh, it was a very positive talk. And one of the things that uh, she was pointing out to me that didn't even cross my mind when I was preparing was that uh, all of the examples that I, were, that, that I was giving last week from last week's passage were only from one side, only from one perspective. I was only talking about what is it like for Christians to experience the persecution? What is it like for the person who is having to turn the other cheek or is being the one who is sued? Uh, I don't think that that was proper English, what I just said. Uh, uh, what is it like to be the person who is forced to walk a mile and choose to go that second mile, and so on? Well, there's also another side to it, because these others are people too. Um, and so there's more to the, this passage uh, from last week than what Jesus is telling Christians, and how Christians should feel, and how uh, what it's like when Christians are oppressed. Uh, one of the things that I failed to do last week was to acknowledge the humanity of the people who are on the other side, uh, the people who we are viewing as our oppressors. Um, and it's really important to understand that, yes, there are some people in this world who are wicked and enjoy cruelty, and in Jesus' day, there were certainly some of those types of people who ended up as emperors or governors or Roman soldiers, even the Roman leaders like the centurions. Um, however, because we are Christians and we take seriously what the Bible tells us, um, there are two doctrines that are always held in tension with one another, um, that uh, we can recognize through these scriptural doctrines that there is more to these sorts of situations than purely good people versus evil people. It would be really convenient if we could just divide up the world to good people and bad people. Um, well, these two scriptural doctrines uh, are called total depravity, on the one hand, and then the Imago Dei. Now, I told you guys last week that scholars really like using Latin phrases. It just means the image of God. Um, so I want to explain these two things, and uh, 
explain how they are in tension, but also how they're both true at the same time. Now, the doctrine that Christians call total depravity is often misunderstood because when you start talking about total depravity, it makes it sound like as humans, we are all as wicked as we could possibly be. That there is nothing good, it is just pure wickedness. Um, and that's not what total depravity is about, and uh, so I just want to explain what it means is that the human race, when they sinned, that sin that entered into the world has an effect on every single aspect of who we are. And so therefore, there's not a single part of us that has escaped the effects of sin. That means our minds, our wills, our emotions, our desires, even in our body, body responses, our spirits, our souls, our ability to even understand and hear things, our actions, even when they're good actions, our righteous deeds. All of these have been affected by sin. And every single part of us has been affected by sin, and all of that effect is a negative sort of effect. It's never a positive, like, oh, now that we've sinned, we're better in this area. No, it's always a worsening, as we have been infected by sin as the human race. And so what this ends up meaning is that, as we even confessed with the, uh, the New City Catechism, uh, that none of us is able to be righteous in God's sight. Because though we are even capable of doing things that from a civil people interacting sort of way uh, could be considered good and righteous, and even though many of us can do things that are outwardly righteous, um, our most moral deeds, and when I say that I mean even the uh, the best and most moral deed that you have ever done in your life is still inf infected with sin. And so the, the greatest, most righteous and holy thing that you have ever done in your life, I've ever done in my life, is not pleasing to God, therefore, because it is tainted by sin. God had designed us as a human race for true life. And uh, that true life entails an intimate relationship with God, an intimate relationship with his creation, an intimate relationship with one another. But again, as a human race, we settled for a counterfeit life, a fake life as opposed to the true life that God had purposed for us. And now because sin has touched every area of our lives and us, our relationship with God is fractured. Our relationships with one another are fractured. Our relationship with this earth is fractured. And so instead of taking care of it and protecting God's good creation, we have polluted it and destroyed it. It even affects our relationships with ourselves, how we understand who we are, how we think of ourselves. All of these things have been broken by sin. And I think that really this is one of the most universal truths out there uh, that we as people can grasp. 
we all know that there is something wrong with us. Um, we all know that even though we try, we don't have the capacity to just do better next time. Um, whatever utopian ideals we think up, they always come crashing down. Crashing down to the ruin of ourselves, to the ruin of others, hurting others. Um, so anyways, we all know that there's something wrong with us. And I could talk a lot longer about that. But uh, we also know that at the same time, there's something really right with us. Um, we as humans are capable of doing some really good things. We uh, can create beautiful things. We can help one another. We can sacrifice for one another. And oftentimes in difficult times, difficult circumstances, we come together. We come together in such a way and we work together for the mutual benefit of other people. Um, the thing that the Bible traces this to is uh, us being made in God's own image. Uh, we were made by God to reflect his goodness to the world and reflect God's goodness to one another in the same sort of way that the moon reflects the light of the sun. That is what we were designed to do in terms of God's nature. We were to reflect it to the world. Um, this is what the Bible teaches us concerning human beings. Uh, where our creative ability comes from, where our ability to make beautiful things, our ability to, to love one another, all of this is sourced in the fact that God has made us to be like himself. And so this truth is also total, meaning that there's not an area of our lives in which we have not been created in God's image. That every single part of us is made after, patterned after God's nature. So even non-Christians who don't believe in God, they're capable of creating really beautiful art, really beautiful music, really wonderful movies. They're really able to love one another at time, you know, times be even more moral than Christians are. And all of this is because they too are made in God's image. When they're creating these beautiful songs, these beautiful movies, when they're creating these things, they're doing it by being in God's image and looking at the world that God has created. Um, and they're responding, and responding in such a way that is wonderful because they too have God's stamp on them. This concept of the image of God actually always reminds me of the movie Blade Runner. I don't know if you guys have ever seen Blade Runner. It's a, it's a cult classic. It's actually very good. Uh, but it's based on a book by Philip K. Dick called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And uh, in that book, the universe that the author has created, um, animals have actually become very scarce. <clears throat> But at the same time that the animals are becoming more scarce, it's becoming more popular to have animals as pets. 
And so it gets to the point where nobody is considered to be a normal, civilized human being that doesn't own a pet. And because there is such a scarcity of animals, and many animals are even extinct because of the way, you know, this, it's a post-apocalyptic type of thing. The human race has screwed up the world, and so now here we are after all of that has happened. But the animatronic animals become the normal thing. So people who can't afford a very expensive real animal end up getting the very cheap animatronic animal. And of course, they look very real, and most people might not even be able to recognize the difference between a you know, fake animal and a real animal. Um, so in this world, uh, in Blade Runner, Harrison Ford's character is doing an investigation, and he comes across a tiny scale in the bottom of a bathtub while he's, you know, while he's doing all of his work as a, as a Blade Runner. And he wants to find out what animal this comes from. He initially thinks that it's a fish, but it turns out to be a snake. But he brings it to the person who is examining uh, the scale and discovering what kind of animal it comes from. And she tells him it's a snake, but what she notices that is there's an imprint on the scale. And she's able to not only tell him that this is not a real snake scale, this is an animatronic snake, but she's able to tell him who made this snake. Um, and so if you think about this metaphor applied to our world, um, the fake snake could pass for a real one, but if you look down at the microscopic level, every scale and every cell bears the image of the one who created it, the one who designed it. Um, I think you guys probably get what I'm trying to say, that uh, deep down every single part of us, including down to the cellular level, has the, impact, the imprint of God, because God has made us. And so here's the tension. No person, or at least very few people, uh, are as bad as they possibly could be. And no person at all is as good as he or she ought to be. So I've said before, our most righteous actions are, have motivations underneath them that have been touched by sin. No one is righteous. And uh, no one is so wicked, however, that that person ceases to bear the image of God because we've all been made in the image of God. This is actually really good stuff because what this means is that the devil, despite his best efforts to corrupt us, is not powerful enough to wipe out, to erase the image of God that he has placed on us. And because there is an image of God on all people, there is a dignity to all human life. We have the capacity to do great good because we are in God's image. We have the capacity to do great evil at the same time because that image has become fallen because of sin. 
And the two things, evil and good, both flow out of us simultaneously. Now remember, even when I say good deeds that flow out of us, what I'm talking about is outward righteousness or civil righteousness. I'm not speaking of the kind of righteousness that God demands, and we will get into that. But the thing that I, this thing that I failed to mention last week, uh, and I'm correcting myself about today, is very significant for us to understand in this passage. Because those enemies those people who are the ones who are smacking us on our right cheek, the ones who are taking us to court, the ones who are soldiers saying, I'm forcing you to walk a mile, the ones who are poor and asking us for help. These all are people who are made in God's image. And uh, understanding that they are human too is so important those people who have wronged us, who have slapped us publicly, stolen from us, oppressed us, are God's image bearers. Now here comes that Miroslav Volf quote from the, uh, the bulletin, although I edited it a little bit to, to make it flow better and be more understandable. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian Christian who grew up in uh, Yugoslavia, and he is now a professor at Yale. He's a, a Christian, and he suffered greatly um, under uh, the terrible things that happened during the Yugoslav Wars, um, specifically with the, the genocides that were going on at the time. Uh, he wrote a book that was called Exclusion and Embrace, and the whole book is about his experience of suffering, but from a Christian perspective, and more broadly applied to all of our sufferings. Um, one of the quotes that jumps out at everybody is this quote that's in our bulletins. Um, so I'm just going to read through it, and again, I've edited it a little bit. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude my enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion. What naturally happens in God's presence is that we take the enemy out of the sphere of the monstrous, and we put him or her back into the sphere of humanity. And we take ourselves from the sphere of proud innocence, put ourselves back into the sphere of common sinfulness. When one knows, as the cross demonstrates, that the torturer will not eternally triumph over the victim, one is free to rediscover that the person, that is the torturer's, uh, humanity and... Uh, and that the person's humanity and imitate, imitate? Is that right? Um, okay, well, I'm just go through that because that doesn't make sense. I must have made a spelling mistake. Um, uh, God, and imitate God's love for him or her. 
And when one knows, as the cross demonstrate, that God's love is greater than all sin, one is free to see oneself in light of God's justice and so rediscover one's own sinfulness. Sorry, I kind of stumbled in the middle of that, but if you boil this all down into one sentence, what Miroslav Volf is saying is that if we are truly Christians and we understand uh, the truth of the Bible, we understand that all have sinned. We understand that the person wronging us is just as human as we are with all of the complications and things that accompany being human. And at the same time, we begin to recognize that we are all in the same boat with regards to God's righteousness. We are all in that boat of sinners. And when we do this, it takes away our ability to look down on other people. It takes away our ability to hate other people if we really understand what he's saying in that passage. This is, this is actually a really important point because all of what we talked about last week is relevant to this week. Last week we saw that Jesus is teaching his followers that forgiveness is necessary. And we are to forgive and not bear a grudge against those even who treat us poorly. Jesus goes so far as to say that we are to treat those who mistreat us in a loving sort of way. We're not supposed to allow others to control us through their actions and through their treatment of us. Rather, we must know God's love and be able to trust that ultimately God is the one who will vindicate his people, no matter how they are mistreated. Last week, we saw examples of how we are supposed to love one another. And those other people um, who are in that passage that we read last week, in this passage, are defined explicitly as our neighbors. Those people who are doing those wrong things to us are our neighbors. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament when he begins uh, this passage that we read today. This thing, uh, th this thing from the Old Testament comes from the book of Leviticus. And in, this, in the Gospel of Luke, this same quotation from the Old Testament happens, and it's what prompts Jesus to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. He's said, love your neighbor as yourself. And people start to ask what we could consider to be a very postmodern question. Uh, they say, yes, of course, we all agree that the Old Testament says that we need to love our neighbor, but come on, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Yeah, I'll love my neighbor, but who? Who do I need to love? And uh, what they're implying is that this is an easy commandment to keep. Their thought is, well, you just love those people who are close to you. Um, love those people who are just like you. Um, and then you've, you've done it. But Jesus tells this story to show that it's not just the people who are like us. It's 
not just the people who are in our family. It's not just even the people who are um, living within a five-mile radius of us. What Jesus says through the parable of the uh, Good Samaritan is that anyone who crosses our path is considered by God to be our neighbor. And so suddenly their interpretation that makes God's law be watered down and makes it seem easy becomes an impossible standard because how can we truly love every single person who God brings into our path? Um, Jesus, as he is addressing them, uh, they were, I said this again, but I think that I wrote it really well here, um, so I'm going to repeat it. Jesus, the people of Jesus' day are taking God's law and compressing it and watering it down to make it easier, more doable, and frankly, more palatable. Well, Jesus is not going to have any of that shenanigans. He uh, shows what God's law was truly getting at. Because God is not only concerned about what we do, but he's also concerned about who we are, what we think, and the reasons why we do the things that we do. God's law doesn't only run skin deep, only concerned with controlling our behavior. Jesus is making it clear that God has higher demands than simple sin maintenance. Jesus doesn't tell the parable of the Good Samaritan in Matthew's Gospel. But Jesus does something that's actually very similar here in the Sermon on the Mount. Before Jesus tells us to love our neighbor, he gives us four scenarios. The ones that we heard last week explaining how to interact with people who aren't treating us the way that we would like to be treated. This obvious uh, the obvious implication is that loving our neighbor as ourselves including, includes all of what we heard about last week. Loving our neighbor means not holding a grudge. Loving our neighbor means not striking back when we're given the opportunity. Loving our neighbor means that we forgive. Loving our neighbor means that we give to those who are in need. And so we're not really talking about anything that's much different than last week. Jesus is simply saying it this week in a different and clearer way. Jesus began this passage by saying, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Um, last week I talked about how this is a very bold statement that Jesus is making uh, when he says, Well, I say to you, since what he's doing is claiming to, when he speaks, be speaking on par with the words of God. To be speaking on par with the same authority as the words of Moses, as the words of the prophet. So many people, as they are listening to this, are probably thinking, who does this guy think that he is? Wow, he has quite a complex, a savior complex, a prophet complex. He thinks that he can tell us how the Bible ought to be interpreted? That he thinks that he can add to or define what God means? Um, 
Last week's scripture, Jesus was quoting the principle that law courts should make fair decisions so that people wouldn't need to take justice into their own hands. And what that passage we saw in the, the book of Deuteronomy was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus shows that people's understanding of that passage had become corrupt and had ended up making people do the opposite of what it was intended for. It was meant to keep people from revenge, but it ended up being a catalyst for revenge. People were saying, well, you did this to me, so I have the right to do it to you, rather than letting the courts be the one who hand out a punishment that would fit the crime. Jesus commands completely the opposite approach, the opposite approach of revenge. He says we need to trust in God to carry out justice and to trust in the state that God has empowered to punish evil and reward good. And so between God and the state, things should be covered, assuming that it's not you know, a corrupt or unjust nation. But if it were a corrupt nation, as many people have experienced, even Miroslav Volf, who I quoted earlier, um, what we need to trust is simply that God is going to do what's right in punishing evil. We don't need to take up the sword and try to get revenge. So just like last week's passage, Jesus begins with a scripture quote, and then he tells us how people have added to that and people have interpreted it incorrectly. And Jesus seeks to correct their interpretation. God had said in Leviticus that people were to love their neighbors as themselves. And especially God emphasizes that this includes foreigners, immigrants, the poor, widows, and so on. What Jesus is saying is that people have apparently interpreted this passage as time has gone on in such a way that has made God's command be meaningless. They have said, yes, God wants us to love our neighbors, but that doesn't mean we can't still hate our enemies at the same time. And whether or not this phrase was actually something that people were quoting, or if Jesus is just putting words in the mouth of people who act this way, that doesn't really matter. What we can understand is that people are understanding this passage incorrectly. He says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is actually doing something surprising here because there's no passage in Scripture anywhere that says that people ought to love their enemies. There's also not any passages in Scripture that say we ought to hate our enemies or even are allowed to hate our enemies. Jesus is interpreting that passage from Leviticus in the light of the whole Bible. And he's doing so by applying the law of love that we talked about last week. Um, he's applying that to every aspect of our lives. So what we see here is another tension. God is all loving, but at the same time, God is all holy. So Jesus says that if we want to be like God, we both have to be holy and loving at the same time. 
And to us, very often, this seems like a contradiction. He calls for us to love even our enemies and then grounds that in the nature of God himself. And he also uh, talks to us about what we would call common grace. God is gracious to people in the world. And so because of that, we ought to emulate that because we're supposed to be like God. Common grace is an ordinary grace that uh, we would distinguish from saving grace. Saving grace is what God applies to people to redeem them from their sins. But common grace is simply God's preservation of the world by restraining human sinfulness. And what God says here uh, as a primary example of his common grace is he makes it rain on wicked people's fields and on good people's fields. He makes the sun shine down on good people. He makes the sun shine down on wicked people. There's no distinction. It's not as if if I'm a righteous person, it's going to rain and the sun is going to shine on my plot of land, but you go next door to my neighbor who's a jerk, he never gets any sunlight. He never gets any rain. That's not the way things work. God pours out rain indiscriminately when it rains in specific areas. And we don't have to get into the problem of drought and, and all of those sorts of things, but we can understand what Jesus is saying. God doesn't explicitly treat the wicked and the righteous different in terms of the ordinary way that the world works. If it's going to rain in an area, it's going to rain on every part of that area. So Jesus applies to us the same sort of concept about love. In the way that God provides rain for all people, we are to provide our love for our, all people and to not discriminate between good and bad people, people who treat us well and people who treat us poorly. It says, if you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more do you do than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The point is, if we're seeking to please God, how would it be even possible to impress God by doing what everybody else does? Everyone else does these things naturally. It's not a stressful thing to even do that. Um, it's the most natural thing in the world for us to be nice to those who are nice to us. Though, of course, again, not everybody does this. Some people are just jerks. Um, it's easy for us to be friends with people who think that we're great. Um, but who in their right minds loves those who are mean to them or to hate them or who hates them? Jesus uses a, a few examples of hated groups to get his point across. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, he used the example of the enemies of the Jews. Here, too, we see a couple of enemies. We see the Gentiles, 
who the Jewish people looked down on because, well, they aren't part of our group. They're not in covenant with God, and they're from a different race. Um, and it's amazing that God has brought us as Gentiles. I assume that we're all Gentiles in this room. But he has brought us into his kingdom, which is now no longer defined by race or um, anything else other than our status with Jesus Christ. Those who trust in Christ have been brought into God's kingdom. The other example that he uses is the examples of tax collectors. People still don't like tax collectors today, so I don't think that we have to really explain that too much. Um, but they especially hated them because they were viewed as traitors. They were people who were Jewish, most often, who were working with the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire were the enemies of the Jews. And so you see people who are essentially traitors to their cause. And not only are they traitors to their cause, but they're also taking money from their Jewish brothers and sisters and giving it to their Roman oppressors. You can understand how they would be even less popular than how we think about people coming to collect our taxes. Um, not that people do that door to door, but uh, anyways, the, the final command that Jesus gives in this passage uh, brings everything together from not only the, ver the verses that we read today, but also the verses that we read last week. He says, be perfect just like God is perfect. Now, I would actually argue that the word that is translated perfect here ought to, in this context, be translated holy. Be holy as your heavenly Father is also holy. And th those are pretty similar concepts, so it's kind of, in a sense, you might say splitting hairs. But I think that it's important because this whole section that Jesus has been uh, going through is hearkening back to the book of Leviticus. And that's why we watched that video this morning. The command that God gives the people in Leviticus is be holy because I am holy. God, God's just expectation is that we would be perfect and holy, which, uh, as we heard earlier uh, in both our confession of sin, our, our confession of faith, and also in this sermon, the sin has affected every single aspect of our lives. We've been affected and infected by sin. So for us to be perfect and holy is an impossibility completely. We can't even come close. Jesus' listeners who knew the Bible were likely picking up on this theme that Jesus was throwing out from the book of Leviticus. Jesus is saying that God requires holiness and perfection from his people because if they are to enter into God's presence they must also be holy. And so, for anyone who knew, Le knew Leviticus, they would also remember that the Old, Testament piece, the, pe the Old Testament people of God were in the same sorry condition that we are in. And they're knowing what God expects. They're wanting to do it, but being incapable of doing it. 
And this is why it's necessary for the sin... Uh, um, sorry. And so what is necessary for the sinful people to be united to a holy God? For an unholy people to be in the presence of this holy and perfect God? The only thing that could do that was atonement. Atonement that was in the center of the book of Leviticus. Jesus' command is impossible. And I've said that about 15 times I realized that, but it's important for us to really understand that it is impossible. And what this means uh, for us is that it ought to bring us to our knees before God's holiness and to admit our inability to please God. It's also uh, supposed to make us ask, since Jesus is being presented, as we saw in the video last week, as a new Moses figure, Jesus is coming and giving new laws from a mountain, just like Moses had done. Jesus has gone through the wilderness and been tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, just like the people of Israel had been in there for 40 years. Jesus crosses over the Jordan River and is baptized in the Jordan River. He's retracing the steps that Moses had taken. And so as they're seeing the, the things that Jesus is uh, saying about himself and understanding that he's to be understood as a new Moses figure. The question that they ought to be asking is, if there's a new Moses, is there also going to be a new atonement? We know atonement is at the center of everything. So was Moses' atonement good enough, or does there have to be another? Is this, this guy, Jesus, going to make atonement and as we uh, move through the book of Matthew, of course, as we come to the end and we see Jesus crucified, as we see Jesus taking on the sins of the sinful people, this is the ultimate sacrifice for atonement. It is the complete fulfillment of everything that the Day of Atonement that we heard about from the book of Leviticus was pointing toward. It is all fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He is the ultimate priest who offers up the sacrifice and ends the need for a priest. He is the ultimate um, king. He is the ultimate altar. He is everything that we saw. He is even the ultimate temple, the place where people can see God and humanity coming together. All of this is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus commands that we love our enemies. And just like last week, we have to understand that this is not simply an intellectual ascent. This has to be from the heart. And in order for this to be from the heart, we have to have a reason for being different and thinking differently than other people. So the question, as I'm wrapping up here, is what enables us to love our enemies? What motivates us to pray for those who persecute us? And I'm boiling this down to three quick points. First, being honest with ourselves about the ways in which our enemies and we share a common humanity and a common sin problem. Recognizing that we're in the same boat. 
Um, I think that this is uh, summed up very perfectly by Alexander Solzhenitsyn in his book, The Gulag Archipelago, where he's speaking about his experience in the Gulag camps um, when he's been captured by the Russians for being a, quote, enemy of the state for being a Christian. And he warns his readers not to dismiss the guards that have the guns as simply being the evil ones. And to not simply understand the ones who are in the holes with the guns pointed at them as they have been forced to dig their own graves as just, they're the righteous. What he says is that if the circumstances had been different, that he would have been the one pointing the gun at the people down in those graves. He recognizes that he is also capable of doing the same sort of things that his captors, his oppressors, are doing. And if the circumstance had just played out a little bit different, those seeds of sin that existed in his heart could have been watered in the same way to grow into that level of wickedness. He won't allow us to divide between good and evil among groups of people. And what he says at the end is that the line that, he, that uh, divides good and evil does not bet run between certain groups of people, but this line between good and evil runs through every human heart. Second, we can recognize that these people are broken people just like us. They have the same problems too, the same sort of things that we're dealing with. We recognize that the way a person treats us may actually be a result of the things that they're dealing with that we don't know about. And it's coming out of them onto us. And if we are broken people, and they're broken people, then they can also encounter Jesus Christ. They can also be saved. And maybe it's going to be our love our turning the other cheek, our prayers for them that is part of the way in which God saves them from their sin. And the third thing is that we trust in God. And it's the most important one of all of those. Tim Keller writes in his uh, book, The Reason for God, uh, that very often people end up blaming God or blaming people's con concept of a God of wrath and justice as a cause for evil in this world. He interestingly ends up quoting Miroslav Volf, actually, in this passage that I've selected from there. Um, as part, you know, it's part of Tim Keller's response. What Tim Keller writes is, in this fascinating passage, Volf reasons that is actually the lack of belief in God that secretly nourishes violence. The human impulse to make perpetrators of violence pay for their crimes is almost an overwhelming one. It cannot possibly be overcome with platitudes like, now, don't you see that violence won't solve anything? If you have seen your home burned down and your relatives killed and rape, such talk is laughable. And it also shows no real concern for justice. 
yet victims of violence are drawn to go beyond justice into vengeance that says, you put out one of my eyes, so I will put out both of yours. They are pulled inexorably into an endless cycle of vengeance, of strikes and counterstrikes, nurtured and justified by the memory of terrible wrongs. Can our passion for justice be honored in a way that does not nurture our desire for blood vengeance? Wolf says that the best resource for this is belief in the concept of God's divine justice. If I don't believe that there is a God who will eventually put things right, then I will take up the sword and be sucked into the endless vortex of retaliation. Only if I am sure that there is a God who will right all wrongs and settle all accounts perfectly do I have the power to refrain. The power to refrain from retaliation. This is a power. This is not simply a command that God is placing on us, another burden. This is a power that God gives us through Jesus Christ. That was a long quote, but it sums everything up perfectly. If we believe that God is just and that God will judge the world, then we can trust Him. If we recognize the truth that on the cross Jesus took on the wrath of God for all those who are in Him, this will change our way of thinking. Our lives, every single one of us in this room, deserves God's wrath and punishment. Maybe we haven't loved God with our whole heart. Maybe we haven't even loved God with most of our heart. Um, maybe we've withheld just a tiny bit of the love that's due to God. Maybe we haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. Um, Maybe we haven't loved our neighbors at all, or maybe we've really, really loved our neighbors, but we have just kept back a tiny bit, the tiniest bit in which we love ourselves more. If God will judge the wicked, and we ourselves were once among the wicked, we don't need to judge them. And maybe even those who are persecuting us will be saved from God's wrath by Jesus Christ's death on the cross. This is what gives us the power to restrain from vengeance, because God will repay all wickedness. And what if this person, what if this person who is doing evil to us does repent and will one day be our brother or sister in Jesus Christ? Wouldn't we much rather say that we had loved them while they were cruel to us than, yeah, this person who's a brother and sister in Christ, I was, I was vengeful back to them. I got them back for what they did to me. I hope that through the power of God we all have the ability to love our enemies, 
to be a witness to God's love in the earth. It is only because Jesus followed all of these commands that he's giving, and they're from the Old Testament, that we can be saved. He's the one who actually loved his enemies because we were once counted among his enemies. We were the ones who he died for. He blessed those who persecuted him. Remember that it's us. It is our sins that made the cross necessary. But he has blessed us who persecuted him. He has blessed us with salvation, though it was our sins that crucified him. He prayed for those who despitefully used him. Some of his last words on the cross were not, you guys are going to get it. But Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Those were some of Jesus' last words that he uttered before he was killed. And he died an unjust death, and he didn't strike back. Christ is the one that made atonement, that makes up for all of the times that we have failed to keep this command, failed to love our neighbors as ourselves, all the times we failed to love the Lord our God with all of ourselves. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, and though he was innocent, he died the death that we all deserved to die for our sins, a death under the judgment of God. As I close, um, and we think of those who are in our lives and who are maybe even currently being cruel to us, um, Recognize that as Christians, um, it may be because we are Christians that they are, they are doing these things to us. It may not be, but it may be. And so we ought to suffer for our Lord if what we are experiencing is being reproached for His sake. As we think of the people who use us, the people that hate us, remember this, no one is beyond the power of Christ's atonement. There's no one, despite how evil they are, that God cannot bring back to repentance. And God may even use our witness and use our prayers for those who persecute us. May use our love for those who hate us in the same way that he used it during the first generation of Christians whose persecuted, persecution included great torture and oftentimes severe death as well. I want to finish up with this quote, and it's another Miroslav Volf quote that's going to remind us of the ways in which the early Christians suffered and made their witness for God. Those who are familiar with the early history of the Christian church and for careful observers of the young and vibrant Christian communities in the Western, non-Western world, there is something odd about the present sense of crisis in the West.
The early Christian communities were not major social players at all. They were not even among the cheering or booing spectators. They were slandered, discriminated against, and even persecuted minorities. They were at most a bit of a thorn in society's flesh, yet notwithstanding their marginality. Early Christian communities celebrated hope in God and proclaimed joyfully the resurrected Lord as they endeavored to walk in the footsteps of the crucified Messiah. It was he who had taught them, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I know I said I was closing with that, but I just want to make one more comment. As the Christians were persecuted, as they were killed, the thing that made people stop And give Christianity a second look was the hope that these people had in the face of death. The hope that these people had in the face of torture. And we've seen from our brothers and sisters from the first century that when you do what Jesus has commanded, that great things could happen. A few days after Jesus was raised from the dead, there was less than .001% of the population who were Christian. By the time of Constantine in 313 at the, uh, uh, the Edict of Milan making Christianity a tolerated religion, Christianity now comprised almost 50% of the empire in less than 300 years. Early church father Tertullian, when thinking about the history of the Christian church and the growth of the Christian church, few few hundred years before, about a hundred years before Constantine said it was actually the blood of the martyrs that was poured out as they were being killed for their faith that turned out to be the seed out of which the Christian church grew. The more the people killed the Christians, the more the people were willing to love their enemies, the more Christians that grew out of that persecution. We don't know what God is capable of doing. We don't know what God is capable of doing through us, through his providence. And if we trust in him, we don't need to take matters into our own hands. We can simply be Christians, stand up for our faith, and trust in Jesus Christ, even in the midst of people hating us, people persecuting us because of what Jesus has done for us. If we have achieved, not achieved, if we have been given salvation by Jesus Christ, and through his sacrifice, we have received the blessing of God and received the um, uh, favor of God, what else do we need? If we have God's favor, what does it matter if we don't have the favor of people? Christians trust in Jesus Christ, trust in the gospel, no matter what your circumstance, for God will lead you through it. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you haven't merely, through these words, given us impossible demands. You have given us your truth. You have given us your expectations, but you have also given these things through the mouth of Jesus Christ, the one who was going to pay for our sins, the one who was going to live a perfect life because we couldn't. And so we recognize what we said last week, that we receive the blessing first and then the commandments second. That these ways of living that you are giving to us are rooted and grounded in the fact that we have already been blessed. That we are poor in spirit and that you have given to us the kingdom of heaven in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for the salvation that comes only through Christ. That he died on the cross and he took our sins, paid for them. And that you sent your Holy Spirit to apply that finished work of Jesus Christ to our hearts and to our lives. We thank you that there is nothing left for us to do but to simply be passive receivers of what you've accomplished. We thank you. We thank you for all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.